0: Hey everyone, welcome to Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. I'm your host, Faz Zadie, and today we're going to be interviewing a pulmonologist. So, let's get into it.
1: My name is uh, Dr. Diego Maldonado. Um, I'm, uh, I have uh, the specialty of uh, pulmonary critical care medicine. Uh, I train in the uh, University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital. I did all my training there of uh, Internal medicine, critical care, and then pulmonary medicine, and then interventional uh, pulmonary medicine as well. And uh, I've been here in uh, Burr Beach for the past eight years. I work for Cleveland Cleveland Clinic Hospital. I'm the director and chair of the pulmonary services there. And uh, today um, I would like to speak about uh, COVID nineteen, a current situation in in our county well
0: hi dr maldonado so about how many COVID patients do you deal with on a daily basis
1: uh, currently we are seeing uh, as a team right uh, we see in all of them right and uh, the number uh, varies between uh, i would say 30 to 40 cases um two to three weeks ago we were above 50 cases um, so I've been consulted in the COVID unit, which is in the third floor. Uh, those are cases; they are uh, moderately uh, sick. And uh, when the patient get critical ill, of course, they go to the intensive care unit, which uh, I'm direct. Uh, I'm I'm the uh, under direct care of, uh, from the intensivist, and which which is us. We are a total of uh, five intensivists taking care of these patients. And uh, yes, yeah, so uh, on daily basis in critical care, we have a unit of uh, 10, 10 beds, which is the IC, the COVID ICU, and they're always full. And then, like I said, the patients in the floor, the number varies. Uh, uh, like, for example, this weekend, I think we had like 20, 20 cases average.
0: So can you tell me what a day dealing with all these patients looks like for you in terms of safety precautions, etc.?
1: Of course. So it, at the beginning, it was very challenging. We all were. Um, it was it, it was something new for all of us. We didn't know how to behave, what to expect. We've never been threatened by such a a, a pandemic, right? And um, so uh, we learn on the way. And after several months, we actually feel very comfortable on how to to interact and deal with these uh, poor patients. So uh, uh, you. You're probably very familiar with the, the PPE, it's, so that's what we that's what we dress, and then uh, we cover ourselves uh, from head to toes uh, to prevent uh, getting infected, and also to, to protect the patients as well. Um, we use uh, N95 masks uh, together with a face shield. We use uh, head covers. Uh, we also use a, a body covers that covers our 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 body and we try to use almost all the time also shoe covers and in the COVID unit specifically these patients are, are isolated and uh, so every nurse most of the time they have one nurse for every three patients and the nurses rotate through room to room and they have to change every time the same thing for us you know in order to to see these patients we change Every time with the new PPE, uh, or we clean our shields, you know, with the with the chlorine solutions or or chlorexidine solutions, trying to prevent the uh, the contamination. In the ICU, uh, the patients are in negative rooms, negative pressure rooms, uh, in order to prevent the aerosolization of the of the virus. In that particular room, you know, these patients, as you probably know, they are in respirators and, and they're intubated, connected to this mechanical ventilator. So there's risk of aerosolization of the virus in the environment. So those rooms are under negative pressure, you know, absorbing and sucking all these particles in the air of these rooms. So it's a little more complex. They, the, the respirators, they have a, we call a HEPA filters. which uh, is also a a way to prevent the aerosolization of this virus when the tubes connect and disconnect from the patient's respiratory system. Um, That's pretty much.
0: Okay, and so next, can you tell me about how the rates of COVID patients have changed since the beginning of this pandemic until now?
1: Uh, As you probably know, uh, Florida is one of the most affected states now. So we, we have noticed the same thing in the rest of the state, uh, in, in a surge, an increase in the number of cases. Um, we're trying, and Cleveland Clinic has done a very good job on the turnaround of these patients, trying not to accumulate them in the hospital. And as soon as they get better, a, we, we created protocols and plans to transfer patients to home or nursing homes trying to bring the patient the, the, the secret patients to the hospital but it, uh, definitely at the beginning let's say February March or March probably we had only you know less than less than a dozen patients in the hospital and we, I still remember the first day that I got my first three intubated and critical ill patients with COVID um, now like I said we have noticed an increase in the number of cases, but we feel much more comfortable because we have very good protocols and, and algorithms that we follow. So it's pretty much automatic. Um, we, we have what is called uh, a protocols of risk stratification. So we use, we standardize certain certain uh, criteria in order to move the patients or escalate a um escalate care in these patients, you know, from the ER to a regular floor to the to the ICU. And then the same thing, you know, de-escalate care as they get better. So it's it's kind of automatic. We we, we put together several teams of professionals and healthcare providers that are involved on, on the daily care of these patients. So it's um we we function very well and I think that's very important because I think we're going to continue seeing an increase in the numbers of this patients. So, you need to uh, to create this uh, this uh, a operations, not just in the hospital, but I would say in every everywhere, um, because we have to learn how to live with this new disease. Uh, we cannot stop working. We we have to function uh, in different ways. So we had to reinvent uh, our our routines, our our jobs. Based on the presence of this pandemic.
0: And can you tell me about, like, now moving a little bit more specifically to like pulmonology, can you tell me a little bit more about like what effects COVID 19 have on people's lungs?
1: So, um, COVID 19 uh, is a viral infection, so it affects different systems. Uh, you get infected through the respiratory system most of the time, right? So, let's start from that concept. Uh, you you breathe you inhale the 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 virus right, and it goes through your respiratory system mostly through the nasal pharynx, and it gets aspirated into your lungs, and it infects the uh, primarily the respiratory system. Uh, the viral the virus uh, is an RNA RNA virus, so it needs your cells your the host the human host cells in order to reproduce, so uh, there is some receptors that the virus uh, target and uh, and then enters into the human cell and the respiratory system uh, at the beginning and they start replicating and depending on the characteristics of the host and um, how fast and then the number of replications that the virus is able to achieve so they there's two factors going to make patients secret. You know, one is they are immunosuppressed and they're not able to contend the disease and fight with the virus because the immune system is weak versus um, you overreact. So it means that your immune system overreact to the presence of this virus, creating this uh, super inflammatory response. Your immune system overreact and, uh, and release all these immune cells and uh, mediators of inflammation that can make the, the host the patient very sick, and that's why we call them. You know, you probably heard it is the cytokine storm. And uh, so, this inflammation can create inflammation of your lungs, and the, the pathology is called acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is just a f- inflammatory fluid that fills up the the units of uh, the respiratory units in your lungs are called the alveoli. So they get filled with fluid and the, the gas exchange of oxygen cannot happen. So the patient becomes very hypoxic and ends up in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. You cannot uh, uh, breathe and uh, in, in, in utilize the oxygen from the air. So you have to supplement oxygen initially with uh, the different uh, devices that's called nasal cannula. And then you either you use devices that are able to provide higher levels of oxygen, uh, which is called a high-flow oxygen devices, which is oxygen released under pressure and volume. And eventually, if you cannot do that, you, there's something that's called non-invasive ventilators, which is uh, a machine that provides oxygen through positive pressure, but not necessarily being intubated, but with a mask in your nose or your face. And then from there, you're still not able to oxygenate. You end up on a mechanical respirator after being intubated, which you need to be sedated uh, deeply in order to tolerate that. So that's the acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, the virus is also able to create infection like any other virus, right? So you get a pneumonia due to the, to the, to the COVID. So you get an, a, a viral pneumonia. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty much in the respiratory system. The question was specifically uh, what type of disease it creates in the lungs. In uh, other systems, of course, also affected, and if you want me to expand in that sense, but in your lungs, that's probably the major problem. You know, Pneumonia and ARDS.
0: And what percentage of people would you say get these symptoms?
1: So from the 100% of the infected patients, it Approximately between 10 to 15 percent, they get they get moderately to severely ill, and then from that percentage, a between one to five percent, they get critically ill. And when I say critically ill, means that they require uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation. If if you make if you make the numbers right, if you have uh, five million people infected in this country. Uh, just make your numbers of that one to five percent, so that's why the hospitals are filled with the the i c the intensive care units are filled with this with this uh, critical ill patients
0: and what factors would put someone at risk to have some of these symptoms
1: so like I was telling you before is depends on the host it also depends on the on the viral load so let's say a a asymptomatic patient infected with COVID, the viral load of that patient when his knees or cough is not as high as a person that actually is infected with symptoms, right? With a with a upper respiratory infection or a low or a pneumonia due to COVID that coughs, the viral load that is gonna throw to the to the air, those those viral particles are going to be a much higher quantity. So when you aspirate that, the viral load has a lot to do on on the degree of infection so it depends on the virus right the viral load it depends on the host like i was telling you if you're immunosuppressed the virus is easy for the virus to 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 overcome your immune system and 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 win the, the battle and also depends on the on the host if like i was telling you, if your immune system overreact it can create this inflammatory process that sometimes is worse than the infection so um, what factors can influence, uh, I was telling you, immunosuppression. So think about patients that, in which the immune system don't work very well. So patients that are going through chemotherapy or, or, they, or they're using medications that depress your immune system, like, for example, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, they're taking these immunosuppressant drugs to stop their disease. Um, patients that they have, uh, their immune system is low because, uh, for example, they might have HIV. Or other immune, di- immuno immune disease. Uh, other patients that, for example, are at risk of infection, such as di- diabetes, di- diabetic patients, patients that are chronically ill with other diseases that can uh, make them immunosuppressed, such as uh, chronic kidney disease, where patients in dialysis, um, they are at risk of all this. Patients with chronic lung conditions are also at risk. So. Because of the immune system. And, and also they have poor reserve, right? It, it's called a organ system reserve. So you, have, for example, if you have a patient with an advanced lung condition or advanced heart condition, they cannot respond to they, they cannot respond to stress and to infection as good as a healthy person. So it's easier for the virus to over, to overcome their, their defense mechanisms.
0: And what treatments are used to like help? Reduce or stop these symptoms.
1: So, as you know, there's there's no known treatment for COVID-19 at this point. I mean, nothing works. That's the reality. Um, now, the researchers and the scientists uh, they had to accelerate the process of finding something that might help um, controlling the disease, but they cannot cure it. Right. So, there's different levels what are being proposed. As you know, the media. Is full of this information, and sometimes we have to filter that that information and evidence. So as physicians, we're trying to practice evidence-based medicine. Uh, we do not practice a, a experienced medicine. In other words, it's not because I saw 300 patients and I treated 300 patients, I'm going to expand my, my experience to other doctors now. It has to be through science, and we call it the randomized control trials, multi-center. You know, multi. uh, You have to prove. You have to utilize medications that you have proved to work uh, with evidence, right? So, uh, what we uh, have created is protocols based on that evidence, and it depends on the on the on the disease, right? So we classify these patients with mild disease. Mild disease. Most of these patients are outpatients, right? They're gonna be going to be, uh, go your office, or they're gonna be at their houses. And those patients, we do not recommend a- any type of treatment. It's like a virus, you know. When the virus has a half life, uh, a half life, and then we just provides supportive care. So the treatment is just symptomatic. Um, for fever, acetaminophen, a lot of fluids, and right, um. Which is pretty much what we recommend at home. It's just a, a, a rest in, until the virus kind of uh, subsides. That's for the mild disease. We see them as outpatients. Patient with the, it'll become sick, right? A moderate uh, disease. Uh, some of them we can manage them as an outpatient. We still do not recommend anything to be given. But the difference uh, in, with this patient, we have to be more careful. You know, we see them more often, we stay in touch more often to make sure they don't become severely ill. When I say severely ill, it means that they start becoming short of breath and the oxygen levels start dropping. So what I tell my patients is to, con- to watch their oxygen saturations with this little device in their finger that is called a pulse oximeter. So it measures your oxygen saturation. And if it started dropping and the trend is dropping, and the magic number is 94%, they start dropping below 94%. You have to be careful. If the patients start becoming sim- more symptomatic, with more shortness of breath, I ask them to uh, go to the hospital. And in the hospital, we do x rays or CAT scans of the chest, which will confirm the presence of pneumonia. Those patients, we have to be very careful because they can evolve into this ARDS that I was telling you, and the viral pneumonia. So when they become moderately ill and the oxygen saturations drop, we have different options these days. Uh, there is evidence about the use of uh, a steroid that is called dexamethasone, uh, that uh, we use it uh, orally when the patient can swallow at, at, at the dose of six milligrams every day for um, between five to 10 days, depending on how sick it is. Usually it's just five days, if it is moderately ill. If it is more severe, you know, severely ill, we do 10 days. If they're in the respirator, we also do 10 days. So that's dexamethasone. So we start with that and if the patient is severely ill as well, now we have an antiviral medicine. But this antiviral medicine uh, drug does not cure the virus, as everybody thinks. This only decreases the number Of days of symptoms, that's the only thing it does, and it's called remdesivir. Uh, So we give again in patient with moderate to severe disease after the dexamethasone has been given, and and we give it also for uh, five days. Uh, That's the second option that we have. As the patient becomes sicker, right, and uh, let's say uh, we had to transfer to an intensive care unit and is intubated on uh, mechanical ventilation, uh, we can use, uh, it's called convalescent plasma, which is the plasma of a patient that has recovered from the infection and has uh, developed immunity. And therefore, you're giving in this plasma the immunoglobulins that this patient developed that will help the patient fight uh, temporarily, right? The half-life of the plasma, unfortunately, is just two to three days so, basically, you're given these antibodies to help the patient going through while, while they're they very sick. And that's the convalescent plasma. And uh, if the patient has a single organ damage, which is just the lungs that are affected, but it does not have any organ uh, involvement, that's the only thing that is available right now. Uh, if the patient has multi-organ failure, right, it has a cardiac involvement, kidney involvement, and we call this, you know, sepsis with a multi-organ dysfunction. Those patients, we use some, some other drugs uh, that they, they target, they, they control the overexpression of the immune system. We call it cytokine storm. Cytokines are these uh, mediators of inflammation that get released through the Im- immune cells that may affect the patient. Uh, and therefore, there are some drugs, that we call them monoclonal antibodies, uh, monoclonal antibodies, that uh, what they do is they target these inflammatory mediators trying to decrease the cascade of inflammation and the over-response of the host. And uh, that's where we stand standing regarding treatment. As you know, this, we're still uh, investigating the combining different antivirals they combining triple therapy with this uh, monoclonal antibodies with two antiviral medications. We're still waiting for randomized control studies to come and tell us if that works or not. Um, and the reason we don't use it is because we can cr- we can cause more damage than benefit. You know, remember this medication that came initially that's called. Um, yeah, hydroxychloroquine. You know, everybody thought that it, it works, and they had some case reports suggesting that, but eventually, uh, up to now, it's probably between five or ten randomized controlled trials that showed that that medicine don't work. It alone or in combination with acetromycin, it does not work. And it causes, in certain patients, it may cause the side effects, serious side effects, especially cardiac side effects with arrhythmia. So, it's very dangerous. So, you don't want it to create more problems that the patient already has Um, and that's pretty much the what we have these days to treat these patients.
0: A lot of people have also been throwing around the term ECMO so what is ECMO and why would you put someone on it?
1: Yes so uh, these patients I was telling you they developed this acute respiratory distress syndrome that started evolving and affecting uh, your lungs and and there is a point in which the machine, the 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 the, uh, the respirator, we can give up to hundred percent of of, uh, of oxygen, and uh, and we use something that's called PEEP, which is the pressure that we use to push the oxygen in the lungs. But when you get to a point that you maximize and you PEEP and your oxygen, that's it. If the patient continues being hypoxic, they, there's a couple options that we use. One is called um, a proning. Proning means that we turn the patient around on their bellies. And uh, the, the rationale on that is uh, when, you know, I'm telling you that this is fluid that fills up your lungs, fluid, inflammatory fluid. So when you're laying on your back, you know, all this fluid tends to, to, to go at the bases of the lungs, right, by gravity. So if you turn this patient to the other side, the fluid goes down again by gravity and then start uh, emptying uh, areas of the lungs that that we're able to now oxygenate and those alveoli start opening and working. So we can increase the oxygen levels in that sense. It does not improve mortality, means that it does not make make the patient to survive, but it helps oxygenating uh, for the providing supportive care until uh, the the virus started going away. So, from there, after being on a full of support from the mechanical respirator a patient is already proning, right um, and the, the next the next step is ECMO ECMO is extra extracorporeal a membrane a oxygenator which it is is artificial lungs right it's a machine that uh, that suck the blood from the patient, almost like a dialysis machine, right? The blood comes out of the patient through catheters, through venous catheters, eh, towards this machine. And the machine has a, a, a membrane that works as the lungs, eh, that, that works as the lungs and oxygenate the blood. And then the blood returns eh, to the patient through catheter. So that's what is called ECMO. So that's like a heroic type of maneuvers, trying to keep the patients alive while the, the lung's inflammation improves. Um, that's, that's what the ECMO is. Again, it does not improve the survival, but it buys times uh, until the patient recovers and it works.
0: Some people have also gotten lung transplants because of COVID. So at what point do you decide that someone needs a lung transplant?
1: You know, first of all, the patient needs to be recovered, right? So once you get this disease, this virus in ARDS is going to be consequence no matter what, right? So uh, I was telling you ARDS inflammation of the lung, but this inflammation eventually was going to turn into scar tissue. So you're going to end up with a lot of scars in your lungs and the consequences you're going to have what's called pulmonary fibrosis in which, yes, you recover from the virus, but the sequela, the consequence where, were terrible. So the patients are, are not going to be able to, to have a normal life and quality of life with, with, that, with, that, uh, with the, that scar tissue in the lungs. So uh, after, when the patient recovers or, or more stable, I would say, and uh, sometimes they cannot be extubated or wean off the respirators because of that, not because the virus is still there or the, or the ARDS is still there, but just because they, the scar tissue has overcome and most of the of the lung lung tissue, so these patients uh, they being they being, been, there's some cases in which they were taken for lung transplantation, um, but they have to be stable. They have to be stable in every sense. They have to be fully recovered from the virus. They do not ha- need to have other organ involvement except for the lungs, so they can proceed with lung transplant.
0: Now moving a little bit away from the technical aspects of COVID and more towards COVID overall so far, what has been the biggest challenge for you and your hospital dealing with COVID?
1: I think uh, the biggest challenge uh, at this particular time is uh, is uh, resources, right? So uh, as the more I we start seeing more patients, we need more a uh, a. Uh, uh, Workers, you know, healthcare providers. I think that's one of the challenges. You know, the workforce is it, going to be a point that we're going to need more, more, more work, uh, healthcare workers. Not just in my hospital, but all around the world, as you can notice. So um, that's one. The resources, in the sense of PPE, right? We we consume it massively. We were, and we were not prepared for this, and uh, the. The demand is so high and the production does not match the demand. So we have a lack of PPEs. So resources are important. Uh, the same thing with uh, the treatment, right? Uh, we need treatment right away. And we cannot do it. As you know, the FDA... The CDC and other organizations are trying to accelerate the process of release medications that they have potential benefit against the virus. But, um, I mean, a drug usually takes 10 years to be studied, to come out safely uh, to the market. Uh, uh, and now we have drugs that they are coming out in six months. A uh, perfect example is the vaccine. We, we had RNA virus the whole life. We never had a vaccine for RNA virus, and all of a sudden, right now, they have three or four being studied, and hopefully, they come out. So, resources, like I was saying, you know, human power, uh, PPEs, uh, medications, and of, of treatment. So, that's the that's the major challenge, and and then the challenge that I see in the future probably is not related to the to the to the to, the, to medicine. But it's the consequence in the society, right? So I think the next pandemia is not going to be the virus; it's going to be the recession and the consequence in the in the community, in the finances of this country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? So that's going to be the next challenge that we're going to be all facing as as a, as, a, as persons, you know, as human beings, as as a as a family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so those are the challenges of uh, you don't know what's what's next we don't know we have to reinvent our society based on this pandemic
0: so speaking along the terms of the long-term effects of this pandemic what do you think the supposed end of this pandemic is going to look like
1: i think uh you know right now we are dealing with the acute effect of the pandemic and here in the united states i would say of course in china and europe eh, and uh, we, we, I, I don't think we can, we can speak about consequences because we are still living the pandemic and, and uh, there's going to be multiple surges and reactivations of the virus for one or other reason. Like, for example, now, as you know, the schools are going to open. And what's going to happen? And I think there's going to be another wave for sure. So what are going to be the consequences in the long term? I think uh, the same thing. You know, you have to start looking in the different in the different areas. In the in the health system, the consequences are are we already seeing it, right? So is is the fact that uh, we have to utilize our resources and beds and time in taking care of these patients, and we are leaving other 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 medical problems without care, and we are postponing. Uh, procedures. We are postponing the the treatment for other diseases because we are taking care of this patient. So that's going to have a consequence too. In the future, we're going to see a spike on the numbers of uh, strokes, heart attacks, uh, cancer, progression of cancer, progression of other chronic conditions that we are not taking care of. Uh, we We are delaying and postponing. And we are, I think, the society, including, including the, the medical care, is anesthetized. You know, we are still taking care of this, but we, know, we don't know what's next. And um, so I think uh, that in the healthcare and, of course, in other areas, financial areas, social areas, educational areas, is going to be consequences, but we still live in the acute phase of the pandemic. And so I cannot tell you with certainty what, uh, what are the consequences yet.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this interview with me.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: Well, everyone, thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. Make sure to leave your questions in the Google form below.